Welcome. You're listening to the 3.0 edition of the Brain Fuzz Arts, Music, and Culture podcast with Joe Kamusa and Matthew White. Today, ceramicist Marcia Sasaki joins Joe and Matthew. We hear about the ceramics vernacular, tools, and process. Utility versus beauty is considered. A fascinating origin story emerges, and thrift store treasures are uncovered. For more information and links to resources on this episode, you can always find the show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com. And now, from secure and safely distributed locations including Brain Fuzz Northwest and Brain Fuzz Southeast, here are Joe and Matthew with Marsa Sasaki. I've seen you refer to yourself as a ceramicist. So if yes. I said, Maso, what are you? You would say a ceramicist. I guess I would say that I'm a ceramicist or potter. Either way, ceramicists sound a little more artsy to okay. me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that was actually the next little note that I had made here was, you know, those terms get used just interchanged, you know, pottery, ceramics. Right. What What are the differences? Um, well, I'm, I, I'm not really, really sure. But the, to me, pottery seems more functional, like, you know, down to earth kind of feel to it. But then ceramicists probably include more sculptural, maybe, or more experimental um, clay works too okay as well as functional pieces too so it seems ceramicist seems more broader and are they i mean are there are there any differences in the tools and process that we're talking about here between these um not that i'm aware of but if you are like um primarily making sculptures out of clay and then if you're a ceramicist i guess you would use entirely different tool from um functional pottery big thing that i uh picked up on from your uh statement is like functionality and utility right which is great are the materials different in terms of if something is going to be functional it needs to be durable because you talk about the longevity you want oh yeah in your objects versus if you're maybe making some uh highfalutin artistic sculpture that that doesn't necessarily have to uh you know it's not going to be handled you know yeah well well, my idea is this okay let's like um let's see there's an archaeologist digging the earth and then some piece of pottery surfaces from thousands of years ago right right and um Whereas watercolor painting will not survive that length of time, I don't think. So that is what I mean by durability. Yeah. So it's the, another thing that I had jotted down here gets to that very point is there's the kind of the utilitarian nature versus art for art's sake. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I've got. So I've got actually some of your I'm reminded of your work daily, Masa, because uh, it is part of my daily routine and I see it and I think about it briefly for that moment. But then I'll pick up 
Uh, there's a salt and pepper shaker and another item, but the salt and pepper shaker, you know, I will use that. There's a utilitarian nature to this item, but then I also look at it and briefly for that millisecond, I admire the form of it. Mm-hmm. So putting something on a wall or putting something in a, in a plexiglass vitrine is different than it sitting, um, you know, on the kitchen counter. You mean like, uh, am I making it primarily for people to use or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you approach it? Yeah, I guess that is. Yeah, I think, yeah I think the functionality is very important to me. If I'm like specifically making teapot or something, then it better pour tea instead of the tea coming out of the lid. You know what I mean? Like um, first teapot that I ever made, it was beautifully formed and cool design. But once you pour the tea, tea didn't come out of the spout, but it came out from the lid. Then I hated that teapot so much because it doesn't do what it's supposed to be doing. So in that sense, the functionality is very, very important to me. And then I do think about that when I make things and try to improve on it too over time. How, how does that process work? Okay, some, sometimes I, I sketch things. I, I used to be primarily interested in painting and drawing and things like that first. And then I you know, started playing with clay and then immediately fell in love with it. So I consider clay to be almost like a... 3D canvas for me to explore the surface design possibilities. And so let's say in the teapot example, let's say the tea comes out of the top versus mm-hmm. the spout. Right. Um, is that something that you figure out in the sketch phase, in the actual process of making it, or in, I guess, the trial and error, the user testing Trial and, trial and error, probably. Yeah, um, really. But you start out with sketch first, and then you make the actual thing close to the original sketch, and then you make you immediately realize the mistake when you actually use it, and then you have to change the whole thing, and then the you know the shape gets improved according to the requirements of the function, and then after that you just don't need to sketch anymore. You just improve the shape of the pots on top of what previously, what I thought it was supposed to be doing. So it's a series of improvements and series of being aware, you know, like each time you make something, it gets better because you know, you know, you know what I, what you did wrong previously. So I had the opportunity to see the setup there Mm -hmm. um, at your studio and kind of re- refresh my memory and, and, and share how many pieces will you have at one point in this process or this part of the process? And then how many pieces are over here in another part of the process? Yeah, it's about 400 square feet or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, it's not a very big place at all, but um, if I am making a cup, my kiln can probably fire up to maybe 60 cups at a time. Wow. Yeah. But to make that 60 cups, I, uh, it's going to take me uh, like a month. So I'll be making some other things to go with that. So I can pack the kiln. I'm probably like have several different things going on at the same time. 
And then one day I'll choose to paint the surface of the pot. And one day I'm just throwing on the potter's wheel. And maybe one day I'm just trimming the pots on the potter's wheel too. And then one day I'm just glazing the whole B-square. So it, it all depends. And one day some gallery needs this many things. So I try to come up with that as a priority. So it's, it varies very much. So the steps, walk through the steps for, for those of us that are... Well, the first thing is you go to the clay store and buy your clay, bag of okay. clay, <laughs> and then bring it back to the studio, um, cut the clay into pieces so that, you know, you need like a pound of clay for a cup. So you wedge that clay, wedging meaning like you, you, don't, want to, you don't want to have any air bubble in the clay because that's got, that maybe explode your pot later. So you wedge clay very well. And then after that, you go to the potter's wheel and then shape the clay into cup shape. So that needs to be dry so you can trim the bottom of the pot. It depends on like, like day like today when there is no moisture, I can probably do that in half a day later. But day like last week when, you know, every day was raining, Clay never dries, so it takes like three days to dry. So it, it varies too because that's, you know, that changed the whole process. But sometimes air conditioning helps too. But that's that. And then I, I when the clay is leather hard, that's when I trim the bottom of the cup. And then when that is done, after that I paint a cup and then put some surface design on it. And then it goes into the kiln for what it's called bisque firing. It just makes clay more permanent. It's, it's hard. And then it comes out. By the way, the bisque firing will take like 13 hours or something like that. Wow. Yeah, and then the kiln goes up to almost 2,000 degrees. So my studio gets really, really almost like sauna. It's very hard. Wow. Yeah. But it's very nice in the winter time, but yeah. not very good in the summertime. <laughs> uh, what kind of paint do you use? Okay, I use colored porcelain slip, which is uh, porcelain clay. It's a very wet state, and then you you add a color pigmentation. It's called mason stain, and then okay. you just mix that. So you have the color. That's like almost like a, it's almost like a gesso on my pot. And gotcha. then next step is to um, draw the uh, design on the surface on top of that uh, color slip. And then you just draw something on it. And then you use what's called underglaze. And then you apply that. Underglaze is almost, almost like a paint, paint, really, like acrylic paint or something like right. that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when that gets dried, it goes into bisque firing. Like, it's going to take two days because kiln gets really hot and then cools down. So two days later, I open the kiln. Bisque is ready. And bisque, they are ready to be glazed. This is, glaze is almost like a glass particle in liquid form. And then when they're exposed to high temperature, they become very clear, like glass surface. So it, it coats the clay and makes it shiny or matte, depending on which glaze you choose. And then the glaze firing, 
it goes in there and then it goes up to like 2,300 degrees. It's a little hotter than the bisque firing that I do. And then that's pretty much the process. And then it comes out and then I just look at it and see how many survived and how many died in during firing. And they are pretty much ready after that. Wow, that's a very involved uh, coming from a drawing and painting right. uh, practice. I'm just thinking, wow, mm -hmm. that's. Uh, but I could see how mastery could come sooner since you're working with in such large batches, mm -hmm. and you just have to focus and it sounds like live with uh, success. And then, like on a given batch you're going to have some that just don't make it or they explode or they just break? I'm well, so, sometimes, like I work with porcelain a lot and then they like to warp sometimes during firing. I don't know what causes it. Maybe it's the way I thrown or maybe the way I wet clay with some uneven spot or something. That stresses the clay to warp sometimes. So I don't mind warped pieces, so I keep it for myself. But sometimes I just... Mm -hmm you know, don't really feel comfortable to supply that to the galleries and places like that. Right. Or sometimes when I make lidded, lidded uh, jars, um, the lid gets stuck. It gets fused, uh, fused to the body so it doesn't open and it's permanently shut. So that's, that's useless. Mm. You know, that's what I mean by some of them don't survive. That, that's just the art object. Then. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's the in in your in your average batch? How oh. many how many do you are you losing five percent? Are you losing ten percent? You Is know, that... actually, I'm getting better and better at at this. More I practice, oh. the less things gets damaged and destroyed. So I would say, like the last firing, everything came out perfect. <laughs> Oh, that's wow. great. Yeah, okay. so like 90%, I, I should say, 95% of the things do pretty well. And is that something that, I, I mean, I assume everybody goes through that. I don't care where you are. If you are the master, mm -hmm. you still are going to have some percentage that you lose, right? Or, I'm, or I'm, I'm pretty sure they do, yeah. Yeah. Even like those, um, you know, tightly controlled manufacturing place, with modern techniques and everything, they make mistakes. So that's, that's why you buy, like, you go to, like, outlet store and buy something that's imperfect slightly. You know what I mean? So yeah. the 100% yeah, is probably, you know, I'm not going to be able, to, you're not going to be able to achieve it. Right. Except the last firing. <laughs> Occasionally, yeah. Yeah. And the whole process takes how long? Um. It, it depends. It depends on how busy I am. Like, um, you you probably have noticed that I I have been quite busy lately, right? Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Like last last month, I did four firings. That's a lot for you know, like a home studio kind of um, environment. So, but then uh, let's say a month before that, I was I was kind of relaxed, so I didn't do much of maybe one firing. Or something like that. So it really depends on how, how what kind of event that I have, or mm -hmm. like if I get a new contract with a gallery or something, then you just have to come up with like fifty pieces in a month or something. Then you just have to do accordingly to what what you have. So I've seen your work in um, 
for sale in the wild. But what's I mean, we're talking restaurants, we're talking museum gift shops, we're talking right. galleries. Yeah, and then yeah, exactly. Um, ah, let's see, restaurant. That's interesting. It's a high-end restaurant. It's called Lazy Betty. Yeah, the um, owner's brother saw me at a art festival. And he thought my style would go very well with the restaurant. So the restaurant owner, Ron, came to my studio and we talked about collaborating for the restaurant. And I started to, you know, um, make not everything. It's just part of the um, dinnerware I make. Mm-hmm. And that this kind of collaboration is very interesting to me because it's entirely different approach. Okay, my art pieces that has decoration and everything, but for restaurants, I just make them like very plain because my work there is like a canvas, and then a chef puts his art pieces onto the canvas that I make. That's this great. is the concept. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. So the, my restaurant collection is very, very simple, minimalistic, yet, you know, I try to have interesting things going on. But in your, and so in your work, mm-hmm. symbology plays a, a major role. Oh, you mean like the alien series? And, and the symbols are in surprising places sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I like the idea of something that is hidden and sometimes the owner find out later that there's something at the bottom of the cup that's not exposed otherwise. That, to me, that kind of makes it more personal. Well, you have the salt shaker, right? At the bottom of the Mm -hmm. salt shaker, do I have like a heart and star-shaped things? I, so we have, there are a couple of pieces floating around, mm-hmm. but um, I have, I have had the experience of picking something up and then noticing something that I didn't see before. Exactly. Yes. So I, I like the idea of that. Yeah. Because you're always discovering, you're always discovering the piece as a user of the piece. Yeah. This is almost like, you know, it comes from, um, I was, I was kind of more into painting when I was in college. So it comes from like, when you look at the painting, sometimes you find something else that you have never seen like later on i really like that uh concept of something hidden or something that you discover later on then it becomes more personal to me so well i think it speaks to you and you said it really eloquently you know in terms of again the handmade versus the machine made and i think that does speak to yes it's a functional object Right. But that's where the artistry comes in, where there are these unexpected gifts, mm-hmm. you know, be it a, a symbol or a shape or obviously your sense of and use of color. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't look like something that I would walk into a, a store and see a mass produced line. And, right. and yeah. I think that's 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 art. That's the gift of giving any of us something, you know, that jumps out from the mundane of daily living. Right. Yeah. So therefore, I mean, you can drink coffee out of styrofoam cup, right? But then if you want to elevate your awareness (laughs) or spiritual existence, sometimes it helps to have something that reflects, you know, that kind of ideas. And that's what I'm trying to make here. (laughs) So painting... Uh, and drawing in college, I was just trying to get a sense of how long you've dedicated your life to this per- to this pursuit. 
Well, in college, I took a ceramic, ceramic course, and then I really, really, really fell in love with it. And then I, I also like to paint and draw as well, too. But I don't know. For, after I graduated, um, for some reason, painting and drawing kind of disappeared. If you don't do it for a while, I, I felt like I lost my subject. Does, does it make sense? Sure. It's, it's not very easy to get back to canvas and uh, staring at the blank canvas and then go back to it because you're a different person at the time. I think that's true, though, even uh, with a daily studio practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, definitely. For the reason you just said. Um, exactly, yeah. It, uh, but the thing is, um, I, I think my, my thinking was this. So later I discovered a clay studio in town. So I went there. And then because I, I wanted to do some artistic things in my life. So I decided to join the studio and then went back to the clay. When you're making functional things, it's meaning is functional piece at the time. So it's much easier to handle because there's no philosophical anything there. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, I mean, that's what I was kind of feeling. Right. But, it's, but then you can just go right to it and then make, yeah. make the cup oh, wow, I made a cup that people can use or something. And then I just went back to it and then started doing more and more. And then that's pretty much how I became a potter. Because you think about it, if you go to the studio and then you start making pots, well, you're going to run out of place to put pottery in your home. Then you're going to have to start giving away or you know, for a Christmas gift or a birthday gift. But then two, three years later, people are just not very thrilled to receive these pots that they were so happy in the beginning. Then you have to kind of, in the meantime, you're accumulating <laughs> more and more pottery in your house and then you just don't know what to do. So then you suddenly discover there's such thing as art festival and things like that. You decide to sell your stuff with a couple people, um, share the booth fee and then you start selling and then you realize it doesn't sell in the beginning because you know what you're making is probably not what they're looking for and then after a while then you you get a hang of what seems to sell what doesn't seem to sell and then you kind of go to that direction because you do want to get rid of your pottery and and at least you want to pay for the materials and stuff like that right? right yeah so that's how it all started and then led me to this point. It's very, I never planned to be this way, but it's just became this way. Well, and then you get to the point where people uh, don't come to your studio necessarily to buy um, a specific item, but they, they want a piece of your work. And so then it flips, right? Right. Now, by the way, while we're talking about your your background, you shared an incredible story when I was there that I saved. I did not mention anything to Joe about this because it was intriguing. And that um, your family, I believe it was your father. Yes. Somebody should write a book about my dad at some point. But, um, well, he was a country musician. He passed away like four or five years ago. I'm, I'm just not very good at it years but um he passed away he lived in nashville why he come to nashville because he wanted to become a country singer which is kind of insane being as a japanese person 
But uh, at the age of 52, he divorced my mom and decided to come to the United States to pursue his dream. So that's what he did. Wow. And uh, yeah, it, it's a very rare story, I think. But if you Google Hank Sasaki, um, you should be able to find a lot of videos of him singing and all that stuff. Oh, that day we were talking about it. Right. And I, yeah, and, and I did. I think I was standing there. <laughs> I, like, yeah. I no, I was a foreign exchange student first, and then I lived in Idaho for many years before oh. he came. He came here because I was here first, and then he was encouraged to, you know, encouraged that his family member was here, and then his dream was to be a country star in Nashville, Tennessee. So he moved there, and then he called me, that he wanted me to move to Nashville with him, so I did. So that's that's not a very conventional, you know, father figure at all. So to yeah. me, that was a very good thing because I could pretty much do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah, there's permission. Yeah, because he doesn't have the right to complain about his son not being lawyers or doctors or any of the number of things that normal parents <laughs> want, to, want their kids to be or whatever. So, yeah, I was pretty much raised freely and very lucky to have dad like that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Yeah. But then his career was okay because it's very difficult to break into a traditional country music field in this country it's sort of like uh, you going to japan and become a sushi man you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> so there's obstacles and everything but then the funny thing is traditional country music is appreciated elsewhere so much more so my dad would have a gig in germany and australia and japan that's how he pretty much made his living that way not so much here, but then although he he did have a gig in like um, downtown Nashville because he's, he's just so unusual. So um, that's that was how he made his living. And was he doing his own material or his own material he, plus covers? Yeah, own material plus covers. And then he wow. was he calls himself called himself Hank Sasaki because he was so. Into, so in love with Hank Williams, uh -huh. the senior. So back then, when he was um, when he was a middle school student, I think. Um, after this is World War II, um, well, the the American soldiers in Japan, uh, the army base in Japan, they were listening to country music, all of them. And then my dad thought that was the coolest thing. So that's how he really got into country music, and then he just went crazy for it, pretty much. And it was it was wow. when did he begin songwriting? Um, his own songwriting is much later in his life, I would say. But he was always performing at a you know like country music bars in Japan. There's such thing there because yeah. um, the World War Two. That's Country music was very popular in Japan, so there's a lot of places that you can listen to, and then you can sing, and, you know. So that's what he was doing. And he had a you know daytime job, but uh, nighttime he would go out and do all live music kind of stuff. 
Fascinating. Great. Yeah. No, I would say he was far more successful than your average um, uh, aspiring country musician. Oh, yeah. He, he did what he, what he really wanted to do. I mean, you know, a lot of people want to do something, but, you know, they don't do it because it's kind of scary if you think about it. I mean, for me, yeah. too, like I, I became a foreign exchange student uh, when I was in high school. But if you ask me to go to let's say Spain right now and then start over, I would be terrified of that. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, there was not going to be any stigma there or I guess an expectation that you, well, right. what was the expectation like? I mean, was the expectation you do what you do, what works for you or. Well, he used to say, uh, do basically his message was do what you are really like to do because he used to say oh I wish I did this so much younger oh. yeah you know that message is just do what you like to do while you can is what he was saying wow and that is I think that is one of the maybe greatest message I think oh it is great I it mean it's great it's, it's universal and, and um, I've heard that from so many successful people mm-hmm. um but at the same time, I think, you know, you've got to do what you want to do, no matter your age and, and you know, depending on one's circumstances, because I think, you know, with art making in general, um, so many people, I mean, I think we're all have, have art in us, you know, right. and it, it's, it gets kind of beaten out of us. Yeah. I mean, each day I'm getting really deep here, but you know, each day obviously is a gift and it's like, how do you want to use your time? Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't necessarily say it's going to feed you, but, right. uh, I mean, physically, but I mean, yeah. you know, I think that, I mean, that's, I'm imagining, you know, the joy um, and that anticipation when you're waiting to open up that kiln and see what's, what do we have here? Oh yeah. It's yeah. almost like a, you know, Christmas time Yeah, when you <laughs> sure. open the kiln and see all the things there, especially when I'm working on some newer pieces or something that are the glazed combination that I have never tried. I am just so excited about things like that. That's yeah, that's great. And I'm sure that gets you through some of the parts of the process that maybe are a little more of a slog at times. Or like you said, when the studio's really, really hot or nothing's drying, um, you know, I just think any kind of studio practice, you've got to, you got to seek out those things that are those magic moments. Oh, yeah. will propel you Cause you know, again, I think uh, any of us doing any kind of creative work, it, um, you know, the world doesn't care if you do it or not. You've got to find a way to keep going. Oh, yeah, definitely. Speaking of seeking out, uh, Masa, you also shared that you've made uh, some discoveries in uh, thrift stores. You're talking about the uh, clothing business that I have on the side now. Oh, well, you okay, want to so, talk about yeah, that. This, yeah, this is an yeah. interesting thing. Okay, well, right after, you know, like um, toward the end of my college years, my cousin called me to find me some vintage clothing from thrift stores in the United States because that was a very um, popular item there at the time. So, like, I would go there and find me an old pair of Levi's 501 or something like that. Yeah. And then I ship it there and... I get it for like back then $3 a pair or something. And then 
they can sell it if it's the right kind and right style and right detail from 1960 something they could go up to like five thousand dollars a pair of jeans in insane kind of market so whoever discovered that something old clothes can be or can have antique values that is a genius right there yeah okay so uh, what i did is like i buy something a shirt for two dollars or something and then sell it for fifteen dollars to my um cousin's store and then they sell that shirt for like fifty dollars or something like that because you know like those vintage jeans is very rare you will probably never find it you know it's not, it's not a common item it's almost like a treasury hunt it's very sure, rare yeah. but then in the meantime like uh, let's just say ralph lauren shirt that's very easy to find here. So you can find it for like three, four dollars and then, you know, sell it for fifteen, twenty dollars, and then they sell it for fifty, sixty, something like that. There's that kind of market that exists. So um that was my that's how I made my living when I was not doing pottery, pretty much. Wow. It's 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 an interesting thing to do. When I was there, I you had a couple of pieces I think in your studio that were unusual like ceramics pieces that I wouldn't know what I was looking at mm -hmm. but because of the nature of production in these things you can have a lot of things made in a batch somewhere and then sold and then they distribute across wide spaces and they end up in a kitchen cabinet or a china cabinet somewhere else mm -hmm. far away and then at a goodwill store Right. I'm reminded of this because I was I remember us talking about it because I went in I was in one, a thrift store and I was on that aisle mm -hmm. and I was thinking, OK, let me just look at this as Masa might look at this. And <laughs> and like, and I can't make like, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what to look for. But then I started to just kind of look at some items that were interesting, look at how they were made. And mm -hmm. then and then I would see maybe uh, marks that told me there was something more to this or another story. There's an artist called Michael Simon. He's almost like a legendary potter figure in this country. And then I found his cut for $2 in thrift store. Oh. They are like $700 today. But the thing is, you can find things like that. It's, it's very, um, if, you, if you kind of, you know, if you're lucky enough, you can find things like that there. <laughs> so how often do you uh, troll the, uh, in the good sense of the word, uh, troll, um, like thrift stores? That's something that's you weekly? Know, that's something I used to do regularly, but right now I just don't have time. Got it. Yeah, but then that, that business is really, really slowing down, and then I'm thinking about maybe just not doing it because my pottery is really, I'm, I'm probably spending like 10, 12 hours a day now in my studio. Wow. Yeah. Because I, 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 I have to come up with the like quantity. You have seen my stuff. I mean, they are like really detail oriented, right? Oh yeah. That means they take so much time to, but the surface decoration for me takes the most time. And I think when, in an earlier conversation, you told me that with the, with the pandemic and, and, and people's habits changing, uh, that, it didn't mean less work for you. It meant more work for you. Yeah, that was much to my surprise because all last year, okay, previous to last year, 
outdoor festival, art festivals and events like that was probably 50% of my income then. So last year, I thought my, my business was gone. Bus- my business is done because there's no events like that that's going to happen for a while, right? So all the festivals has been canceled. So I didn't know what to do. But then suddenly, galleries were calling me and they were wanting more pieces. I guess there was more demand online, demand for online yeah. shopping because people were in their homes nothing much to do so i guess you browse you couldn't even go to the stores and all the galleries were closed to the public so i guess people just discovered uh, that you can purchase things like that online more and more so and do you find when someone's shopping online or they do they set out looking for functional items for their homes housewares um, or are they looking for a piece of art um well Functional and piece of art, maybe. Okay. Because well, that's yes. very unusual if you think about it. Mm-hmm. If you're just looking for a cup, you can go to IKEA um, or, you know, like Crate and Barrel or whatever those places, and then you can buy like 30 cups for $8 a piece or something like that. But mm-hmm. that's not my market. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming like people like the function as well as design. It, it, it's an interesting space because not just with your work, but then there's another ceramicist work at, at, at my house and it's in a like high traffic. We use this piece. And then one day one of them broke and it was mm-hmm. just through honest everyday use. It wasn't abuse or anything like that. It just right. yeah. <laughs> clumsiness. It wasn't, anything. it was just wear and tear. And, and then this, um, and this piece broke and, I just remember there was a part of me that struggled with that for a second because I should, it was almost as if I should have somehow protected it more or Mm -hmm. use it as a showpiece rather than something that I was using um, daily. But in another way, it was like, well, that's the best way to honor this person's work as well. What are your thoughts on that? Am I crazy? Oh, no, you're not. You are my best kind of customer. So you can, come back and buy more pots. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there you go. So you get a new piece. And you don't have to store it. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes I find, like, uh, some of my clients, they have a glass case, and they display my cups and all that stuff and never been used. I'm fine with that, too. But I like the idea of the intimacy of somebody actually using my piece it becomes yeah. kind of a, some, someone's daily routine. I really like that kind of idea. Well, you know, you think some folks too, like whether it's budget or space, like but mm-hmm. you're saying, especially maybe if someone's looking online at a gallery, do they have room for a painting? Can they afford a painting versus, I mean, your work functions as a beautiful painting object of art and that's functional it can be displayed like i think that's a great position to be in yeah it's Uh, it's, it's very very different yeah i understand but sometimes i feel that if i put the same amount of time into painting and you know and if i were able to sell paintings for like ten thousand dollars a piece that is a very good position to be but the thing is i really enjoy making things with clay it's just something that i cannot really get away with does it make sense to you 
Yeah, the functionality yeah. and um, you know, I, I agree that you know anyone that can sell you know p- paintings at a high um, uh, price point, but um, you know I think everyone always you know when I've had people in studios or at a gallery, they usually are, Oh, well, you just have to sell like, you know, five of these this year. And it's like, but it, there's no guarantee that you're going to sell five or that it's going to be on some kind of, uh, timeline that's um, convenient, you know, to paying bills and feeding yourself. Um, but I, but I agree. I mean, you know, we all make what we make and, um, you know, the amount of hours that you devote to this, I mean, I'm, that's obviously it's got to be a labor of love in addition to being a livelihood because that's oh. that's pretty intense. Yes, it is. Yeah, I feel especially like I'm when I'm on the wheel centering the clay. It's almost like a form of meditation. That throwing process to me is very peaceful, and I think I don't consider that as a stress at all. You, do you see what I mean? Yeah, that's okay. great. When I was doing. Uh, residential construction project management job that was stress from both sides <laughs> from the contractors and then the homeowners you're in sandwiching between these and then you hear the complaints from both sides it's very different environment i didn't know about that i didn't know oh, that yeah. was part of your uh, there's, I, I did so many different things <laughs> I, I i did an interpretation you know, like a Japanese interpretation job here. So, and that's one thing. And then that, that pretty much led me to own, run a project management company because there's many, many Japanese companies in town and they have houses here, but they needed some, somebody to manage these properties. So that's why I came in to arrange uh, subcontractors and things of that nature. Wow. So that was very interesting. But then the interpretation part was um, very interesting because, you know, a lot has a lot of conventions and things like that, right? So I get hired on that particular project where a group of Japanese theme park roller coaster uh, uh, division comes here to negotiate the repairment cost of the roller coaster so i go in, in between these parties and then do the translation so that was kind of interesting wow. yeah you you learn a lot about different businesses wow so like the, there's a international fabrics convention so you go you take these group of japanese people into the convention and then you go around the booth and then you see all these fabrics that you have never thought possible mm-hmm. these things kind of gives me different ideas and then you can kind of use things like that later to your own work too somehow see i've always believed that having a varied work experience or some life that you bring to your art making oh, yeah. makes for much more interesting art oh yes yeah definitely and such a varied so with such a varied work experience i don't tell me again you're Okay, you were foreign exchange. Did you study ceramics? Did you self-study? How did you? Um, yeah, I was a graphic design major. And then the okay. ceramics was uh, elective, right? Okay. But I really, really liked it. Um, yeah. Even like paintings were like uh, elective too. Although I really liked paintings and drawings, but I never measured in it. Because um, at the time, I thought you needed something to fall back on. 
yeah. It helps. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, coming from a family where your dad wants to be a country musician, he's not going to support your life. <laughs> You know, I think that that's also part of what that whole process is about is learning. You know, we we tend to think that we approach education. This is the thing that I want to be. And and I'm going to go from point A to B now. Right. I have never done graphic design job in my life. Really? (laughs) Yeah. But it comes handy, though, because all these um, basic designing um, you know, basic design 101 and all these things you learn about the color schemes and yeah. basic composition. These things are still with me and then it's uh-huh. reflected on my pottery pieces. So, yeah. Sure, nothing, yeah. Nothing being wasted, I don't think. No, no, no. Look at that, Joe. You saw that just then. Let's see it. Let's see that piece of... Uh, a cup? Yes, let's see that again. Yeah. Yeah. Very this nice. is my Alien series. One day I was just playing around with cookie cutter, and then there was a, you see this outline here? It's actually a cookie cutter. If you turn this upside down, it's supposed to be like a tulip. But then if you, oh. you, you see what I mean? Uh-huh. But then that's where your creativity start, uh, comes in. You turn it upside, and the tulip's shape upside down, and then you put like a, this eye figure in it, suddenly becomes like an alien figure. Hmm. So that's how I came up with this um, symbol here. And then later on, it came to, I came to realize I'm an immigrant. I'm a green card holder, green card citizen. And then in my green card, it says resident alien. So I realized there's a line <laughs> to this design yeah. Or you know my immigration status, and then I re- when when I realized that not so much this cup, but then I have a other more decorated cup. He has like the numbers to it. He has the numbers, and then that number is actually my resident alien card number. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, things like that I, I add to my pots for you know fun reasons. Oh, I think that's so. Yeah, let, me, that's great. let me explain more to more about this. So I finished drinking this cup. When you finish drinking out of this cup, you see a person inside of the cup. In the bottom, okay. Right? Yeah. So, the, so when I realized, why did I do that? I came, to, came up with a story. So each morning you drink your cu- cup of coffee and then you finish it. There's an abductee inside of the cup and you save someone's life. So that's like the way to start your morning. So there's, there's a little, you know, narrative that that's you can great. add to your pieces. So for those listening, can't see what we have the, what we have the advantage of seeing your work is available to view purchase at uh, what's the address. Oh, uh, well, actually you can go to my uh, website, masasasakiceramics.com. I don't have anything right now, but then uh-huh. there's a link to all the galleries that carries my, my items. That's great. So when in Atlanta, Signature Gallery, the High Museum gift shop and uh, Beehive. I, uh, I, again, your website is fantastic and really shows off your work very well, but uh, Thank you. You, I think you have a tremendous color sense. Thank you very much. I'm going to seek your work out in the wild. Please do. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Masa. Thank yeah, you. This was great. Okay. MasaSazakiCeramics.com. And of course, show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com. You can find out uh, more about Masa and and link from there. As always, be sure to visit the show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com for more information on the topics discussed in this episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Brain Fuzz. That's two words, Brain Fuzz. And be sure to leave a thumbs up or a five-star review. Finally, don't forget Instagram at BrainFuzz Podcast for the rare visual nuggets related to the show. Engage in the dialogue, or just say hello, and use hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast.